0: Go.
1: This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host Phil Goldberg, our podcast Spirit Matters found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Kiati Joshi. She is a public intellectual whose science research and community connections inform policymakers, educators, and everyday people about race, religion, and the immigration in the 21st century. We have some great, interesting, to me anyway, subject matter we're going to get into today. She's also professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University in the Department of Education. Thank you so very much, Kathy, for taking the time to come on with us today.
2: Happy to be here, thanks for having me.
0: Kathy, you came to my attention when I read an article uh, or an interview with you um, on the subject of your new book, which is about Christian privilege, white Christian privilege. Um, I wanna get into that but first, give us a little background about your own uh, spiritual life and uh, what brought you to the uh, research that you do.
2: Uh, sure. So I, um, uh, I identify as a Hindu. I am Indian American. Uh, technically, I am an immigrant because I was born in India, but my life experience is more Uh, Analogous to a second generation American. And I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, where I really didn't fit in as a little brown Hindu girl race and religion. um, In good ways and bad have really defined and marked my life. I um, I'd say that um, in middle school and high school, Monday through Friday, Phil, I would have done anything to not have brown skin. And to not have a name like Khyati. um and to go to Sunday school. I would have liked <laughs> to have done that. Uh, at the same time, though, on the weekends, I was a very proud Indian, Indian American. I grew up with a very nurturing, loving, supportive community. Um, all of my uncles and aunties in Atlanta are still people who mean a great deal to me. Um, and they, along with my parents, Have made me who I am. My summers were often spent in India with my grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and everyone. So, because of that, for which I thank my parents all the time, I'm a fluent Gujarati speaker, Mm. um, which helps me tremendously. So, I'm, you know, and very proud to be Gujarati.
0: Especially when you go to a motel.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah and um and so you know i grew up in a very christian environment but i would say really you know all i knew about christianity growing up was like that i was going to hell cuz i didn't accept jesus christ as my <laughs> lord and personal savior right um it wasn't until i majored in religion at emory university and took a class on liberation theology that <laughs> i you know kind of realized well no no not all Christians think that way, you know. Um, I actually focused on genocide and Holocaust, eventually going to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for a year um, to study, and where I ended up also studying uh, Arab-Israeli relations and such. And I do think it's relevant to point out here that that's where I met my husband who is a Christian, by the way, not a Jewish person. Um, and so um, we married and he's very steadfast in, uh, in his faith. He's an Episcopalian. And um, we have a 16 year old who we are raising as both Hindu and Episcopalian. And, um, and so all of that comes into my professional world also. All of that comes into my professional world.
1: Interesting. I, I'm curious. Uh, you went to Emory University, and, and that is a, a really great school. It's uh, in Atlanta or the Atlanta area, as I understand. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine they uh, draw from students all over the United States, all over the world. It's a, one of the top uh, undergraduate programs in, in the United States. Uh, was it a big difference uh, in your interactions with students, uh, people you live with in a dormitory, people you went to a class with? Was that a lot uh More, uh, was it a lot more accepting than the kind of white Christian majority you were growing up with in in elementary school and high school and middle school during that period in your life? Was it sort of an awakening? I'm in college now, people actually are more open minded, or is it more of the same?
2: No, it definitely was, but I attribute that more to age and adolescent and late and early adulthood development. So I'm not
1: getting a feedback.
2: Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, um, I, 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 yes, it was different. Uh, and I would attribute that more to you know, adolescent development and young adult development than I would necessarily um, who I was or wasn't around. I mean, by the time I was a junior in high school, the bullying and harassment had stopped, right? Because kids grow up and realize they shouldn't be saying some of the things they're saying and they think differently and you know, it comes with maturity.
0: Um, can you tell us what led you to write White Christian Privilege and what you mean by uh, distinguishing White Christian Privilege from what we've commonly called now, you know, in recent times, uh, the focus being on on White Privilege as a racial issue? Uh, Why Christian privilege, and how does that play in? uh, Why is that significant?
2: Sure. Well, I um, actually have been writing about Christian privilege since it was in my dissertation in 2001. And I've published several um, articles and book chapters on this. the book was, you know sometimes I'm talking about Christian privilege. sometimes I'm talking about white Christian privilege, because Christianity, like whiteness, has been embedded into our is, is embedded and has been embedded into our legal and social structures of this country. And like whiteness, uh, it's often been invisible. And th- my book is about making it visible. You know, now I talk about white Christian privilege. Uh, that's the title because race is so, such a, you know, kind of preeminent categorizing principle of, of our country that um, for example, black Christians, Asian Christians will have Christian privilege, but they're still race then. And so the intersections of race and religion um, has been a focus of mine in terms of my own scholarship and I bring it into the book there, here also. So, so sometimes it's Christian privilege and sometimes it's white Christian privilege.
1: As a non-white, non-Christian American, do you find uh, whiteness being a bigger problem or Christianity being a bigger problem?
2: Um, I'm, I would challenge the premise of that question because I think then that just gets us into this hierarchical bit I think we really have to look at the specific issue we're talking about or the specific groups we're talking about. And well, I, I
1: guess what I meant, if I could interrupt Annette, is that uh, is the sense of privilege c- coming more from a person's feeling of whiteness or a person's feeling of I'm a Christian?
2: Well, privilege is coming from privilege is a product of systemic oppression. Right. Privilege is not anything. If you have white privilege or if you have Christian privilege, you haven't done a darn thing to earn it. It's there because of Mm -hmm. who you are, right? And so what we have to understand is white privilege is a product of systemic racism. Similarly, Christian privilege is a product of systemic religious oppression, where Christianity um, is, like whiteness, been embedded into our legal and social structures, like I said. And I get into uh, various historical and legal moments in the book to explain this to show the evidence of what i'm talking about and then in the latter chapters i talk about well what this looks like in our everyday lives and then how it impacts christians and non-christians religious minorities atheists and agnostics alike
0: can you elaborate on that last point how does it show up in our everyday lives in several ways
2: sure it shows up um we can think about uh the holidays and days off that are given. Um, and then when people have to take personal days, as I do, to celebrate my holiday. You know, I explained to my students um when I was not tenured, um, I was always a little worried when I canceled class for Diwali. Um, because when you cancel class, you have to make it up. And You know, if my students complained that, well, now Professor Joshi is making us come back to make it up, um, I thought, you know, it could be problematic. No students complained, but the fact that I had to put energy into that and worry about that is an issue. It's a privilege that Christians have that practically the world, not just our country, but the world comes to a stop for December 25th, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, actually something happened just this morning that I can tell give you an example, a religion news service, uh, put out a headline that says, um, you know, think the holidays are over. Not yet. January 6th is epiphany, right? And I immediately tweeted <laughs> and said, are holidays ever over? <laughs> right? January 14th is Makar Sankranti." <laughs> Right, so just the, you know, the the deep Christian privilege in the reporting by journalists, even the language being used. Um, another example, Phil, of everyday Christian privilege I encountered um, in high school is, um, I didn't do very well in middle school um, or ninth grade, and mostly it's because of the bullying and harassment that I faced. And, um, and I really, I never read any book in high school, except Night by Elie Wiesel, which is what started me on this path towards issues of equity and justice. But um, I remember being in ninth grade English class and my teacher was explaining similes and metaphors. And she said, you know, blah, 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 simile, la, 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 metaphor. Y'all all know the story of the Good Samaritan, blah, 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 blah. Well, I didn't know the story of the Good Samaritan But since I didn't do well anyway, I just kind of thought, okay, Mm -hmm. this is something else I don't know and something else (laughs) I didn't read. She was not wrong to bring up the story of the Good Samaritan to teach us similes and metaphors. Where she failed was to assume that every student knew what it was, Mm -hmm. right? And that happens a lot, right? It's in our language. It's um, Sometimes I think of it as secret passwords that folks have. so yeah, it manifests in a variety of different ways. You know, We can think about what's served at lunch, at uh, business lunches and who's accommodated for and who's not. And when we talk about accommodations right there shows a group has
0: privilege. It, 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 can I follow up on this? Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, one of the issues I know is very important uh, in the Hindu American community is how Hinduism is portrayed in the media and in uh textbooks and so forth. How does Christian privilege influence how people see non-Christian religions, especially the religion the newer religions in American life like Buddhism and Hinduism?
2: Uh, so, yeah, that's a great, great topic to address. Um, Christian privilege has a, uh, a fierce role, is how I would describe it, on the depiction of Hinduism in, in the United States. Um, you know, when Christian ideas are presented as beliefs, like the virgin birth, like the parting of the Red Sea, which is not just Christian, um, yet the idea that I believe Hanuman jumped from present day India to present day Sri Lanka is regarded as a myth, right there delegitimizes yeah. my faith as compared to Christianity, right? And so we see that a lot. We see that in the way, in the depictions of the Hindu deities, um, You know, it's considered comical, fantastical um, and Christianity is the more, rever- you know, is the um, more substantive faith.
1: Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's
0: you think that uh,
1: uh, Christianity, yeah. um, uh, Christian privilege coming from the oppression from Christianity, uh, as I understand it, is that also due to the fact that Christianity is a religion that proselytizes? They want everybody to be in their club. Uh, whereas Hinduism, uh, uh, I, I know many Hindus and nobody's ever tried to convert me to Hinduism. Uh, people of Latter-day Saints have tried, you know, and there are uh, Islamic people, maybe uh, other Christians, uh, but, but uh, not so much in H- Hinduism. But, but do you think that aspect of proselytizing uh, is going to make a religion more oppressive?
2: Well, I think you've actually brought in a whole bunch of different threads that have to be disentangled. So first, you know, when we're talking about Christian privilege, it's really a a structural, a legal and social structural issue that we have to tackle. Um, And I think that's important because otherwise then we're getting into beliefs, right? Which someone believes this and they can believe it. Uh, I, I show and map out how Christian privilege has been present. In the book, I talk about three phrases, Christian hegemony, Christian normativity, and Christian privilege. And Christian hegemony is really where I'm talking history and law. And so you have to go back to the doctrine of discovery, um, which were a set of papal decrees in the 1500s that said uh, essentially that any uh, what, what I learned in elementary school as explorers, which I, who I refer to as colonizers, right? <laughs> um, any colonizer coming upon land, not owned by a European monarch, not claimed by a European monarch is theirs to take. So that's what happened with North America, Central America, right? In terms of the colonizers, uh, South America. And then that doctrine of discovery fed the idea of manifest destiny that said this land was theirs to take from sea to shining sea, right? So I think that um, showing this and then how that has influenced law in this country, we can take some of the free exercise cases and dissect those. I don't know how much detail y'all wanna get into, but we can also look at immigration acts and see that even though we have First Amendment with freedom of religion, you have to understand how race ethnicity and religion have intersected um, in terms of the impact of immigration laws and some Supreme Court decisions. So that's where my focus is. Um, Proselytization is an issue and it's certainly an issue um, on the everyday level here. But when I'm trying to make the case for Christian privilege I stick to legal and social structures.
1: I get to ask a follow-up question. Do you think in the last 20, 30 years things have gotten better or worse?
2: In relation to what?
1: in relation to uh, the effect uh, Christian privilege might have on somebody who's not, uh, w- a white Christian privilege might have on t- somebody who's not white or Christian, but American?
2: Um, see, I think that you know these legal and social structures, they don't disappear when they're embedded in our mm-hmm. laws. So for example, although we have increasing religious diversity in our country, Uh, post-1965 with the Immigration Act, um, we can still see um, that there are issues of equity and justice when different houses of worship are trying to be built and local city councils and townsfolk object to it, right? So it's important. Religious diversity does not equal social justice. And so, or, or, or the presence of religious diversity doesn't mean we have equity and justice. So there have been many... Uh, Hindu temples, synagogues, mosques, gurudwaras, w- where, you know, communities try to erect those houses of worship, and the townsfolk opposed it, even when those buildings were going to be erected in on land that was already zoned mm-hmm. for religious houses of worship. Right. So that's still an impact. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to, you know, it, 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 privileges, again, pr- and this is, it's, It's hard for sometimes for people to get it around, you know, get their hands around it and head around it. But privilege is a product of systemic oppression. And so until we undo those laws, until we override those laws, until we override those Supreme Court decisions in some cases, they're not going away.
0: Which specific laws and uh, Supreme Court decisions would you most, uh, are are most um, uh, on the forefront of this and which would you, if you were an activist, would, would you seek to overturn?
2: Well, I think of it, there, there's right now the, the biggest issue, I would say the one that's impacting us now is the Hobby Lobby decision um, in terms of the way, uh, the idea that corporations have the same amount of freedom, if you will, and say as people, and the way that Hobby Lobby is using its religious stance to impose that religious stance, their Christian views on people in terms of people's healthcare choices. I would see. I would say that that's a really, really important one. There were a couple that uh, decisions that came down this summer that it will be important to keep an eye out on. To keep an eye on. There's one, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, now out of Montana um, that basically provides um, both the cases that happened this summer privileged religion um, in general above other civil rights and. Uh, so it'll be interesting, One in Mo- the one in Montana had to do with religious schooling, religious schools, and them receiving, um, you know, uh, government funds, and it'll be interesting if there's any non-Christian schools who end up receiving those funds.
0: Right, you know? and, so, and the issue of religious freedom, that term has become a loaded one as well, hasn't it?
2: Well, uh, you know... Yes, unfortunately, I think one of the things that um, conservative Christian America is really good at is marketing and taglines, you know, um, their messaging, their messaging is phenomenal. And the fact that they've co-opted religious freedom for their use, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so and I think that one of the reasons they're able to do it is because so little is taught about uh, systemic oppression in general in the United States, not just systemic racism, but framing. Uh, That's one of the things I'm hoping um, is that uh, we can reframe even some of these free exercise clauses that are taught about and other scholars have done this. Um, On a side note um, for your listeners uh, who might be teaching, um, we've developed two instructor's guides for the book. One aimed at ethnic studies, religious studies professors and instructors, and one aimed at written by a friend of mine who's a judge and um, my husband who's an attorney. They did the one for law schools and legal studies Um, because, you know, taking information that's always been taught but presenting it from this view can really change outcomes and and learning objectives. So, uh, you know, really hoping to make an impact in that area. Um, but I forgot what I was saying
0: before that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, uh, what what do you advise folks who, who who might speak to you and say, or maybe a student of yours who says, look, I encounter this, uh, uh, white Christian privilege. It's affecting my life. It's affecting my pursuit of what I want to accomplish. Uh, and it's making me depressed or, 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 uh, I'm tired of it. What, what do you advise them in in regard to how to deal with it?
2: Um, well, I think, First of all, um, a lot of folks who are encountering it don't know they're encountering it. Like they they are um, they're on the you know they're facing the brunt of discrimination, but they don't necessarily realize this is a thing. And I think what one of the things one one of my objectives in writing the book, one of my real reasons for writing the book, was naming phenomena and providing language. Mm Um, to name some of the experiences that religious minorities and atheists and agnostics are having, as well as helping Christians understand that this is a real thing and here's what's going on. So that's step number one is being able to name things. Um, Step two is um, hoping and making sure that the person or student doesn't internalize the oppression because that's often what happens, right? So, middle school and high school students will internalize it. And what this means is oh, yeah, you know, I, I come from a real weird religion, right? I come from um, a, a crazy religion. Um, my very first book, um, which was based on my dissertation. Um, it was called "New Roots in America: Sacred Ground, Religion, Race, and Ethnicity in Indian America." And I had—I'll never forget—it's mm-hmm. based on interviews with forty um, second-generation Indian American Hindus, Sikhs, Christians, and mm-hmm. Muslims. And I had one Hindu woman say to me, "I wish there was a Ten Commandments in Hinduism,"
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, because she was just looking for what is this about, you know. Um, she didn't understand her faith her her nobody could help her understand her faith and so she just kind of internalized my faith is weird it's not you know in christianity she could get her head around it because she was constantly around it right but with hinduism she wasn't so one of my objectives always as an educator and especially as a teacher educator is to help teachers understand all the power they have so that our kids don't internalize classism, sexism, racism, religious oppression, and so on. So that's really important.
0: I'm I'm glad you went where you just went. I have two questions. Uh, One, um, I've heard the yamas and niyamas from the Yoga Sutras referred to as the Ten Commandments of Hinduism. That's one of the ways that the Christian framework gets superimposed. I've heard the Bhagavad Gita being called the Bible yes. of Hinduism, and neither is really true.
1: <laughs> you, you never know, hear the, it the Bible apply. being the Bhagavad Gita of right. Christianity. Well, yeah.
0: it, it shouldn't be because they're very different. But right. the other thing I, I would uh, love to hear you talk about is uh, that subject matter of your, of your first book is of great interest to me because of, you know, the work I've done um, I've become very uh, intimate or or uh, conversing with the Hindu American community, and I think the 1965 Immigration Law will be considered one of the turning points in 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 American history, certainly American religious and ethnic history. Yes. Uh, could you basically discuss the the effect of that and and now, now you 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 said you were born in India, but you're basically a second generation mm-hmm. uh, Hindu American. Now there are third and fourth generation Hindu Americans. Yes. And I'm curious to see to the the extent to which that um, the Indian, the Hindu American experience, as well as the 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 Jain and Sikh experience, um, is is similar to or different from like the, the uh, Jewish experience of a, and Catholic experience of 100 and 150 years ago, how are the, the American born Hindus different from their parents and grandparents and so forth? I, and that's asking a lot, but you know. yeah,
2: <laughs> Yeah, no, um, so a few thoughts. Um, well, first to really understand the Immigration Act of 65, we do have to back up a little. Uh, and to really understand the impact of it. And I'm only gonna back up to um, 1917 real quick and 1924, um, which were two immigration acts that um, are really important to this conversation in a num- number of ways which will become evident once I talk about them. The Immigration Act of 1917 is known as that and is known as the Asian Bard Zone Act because it created a barred Zone from present day um, Iran, through South Asia into Southeast Asia. This swath of the planet, um, people were no longer allowed to immigrate from this swath of the planet to the United States. So um, the law is very clear. It's out, you know, it's prohibiting people from these the countries in that zone, okay? It doesn't say one word about religion, but when you see the impact of that law, you see that this excluded Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, some Jews, some Christians, Muslims, all kinds of folks, okay? Now, you you put that on hold for just a minute and we go to the Immigration Act 24, which severely curtailed immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. It did not shut the door on it like it did for the Asian Bard Zone Act. There was um, a 2% of the sending countries that you know based on the 1890 pop, uh, census were allowed to come in okay so the way i describe it is for asians the door was shut in 1917 and for those coming from southern and eastern europe there was a shoe put in the door to keep <laughs> it slightly ajar as the visual okay now when you look at the countries of southern and eastern europe in terms of their religious backgrounds we're talking about jewish Catholic and Orthodox, right? Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, not Protestant. So if we put together 24 with 1917, Congress was socially engineering demographics of our country, right? To be skewed to white and Protestant, right? Now, mm-hmm. Our doors were effectively shut after 24 until 65. There were a few exceptions along the way, uh, not nearly enough. I think specifically about the refugees, Holocaust refugees, the Jewish refugees from Europe, Um, and you know, and there were a few other exceptions. In 65, we open up and we said that uh, every country can send immigrants, and it is absolutely what, what what's so interesting about the Immigration Act of 65, which was signed by President Johnson, who um, wasn't the most liberal president we've had, Um, you know, but he did some amazing, he, you know, during his tenure, there was some amazing legislation brought about. But what's really interesting is that in his remarks at Liberty State Park, um, at the signing ceremony, he said, you know what, this law is about undoing the wrongs of the past, but it's not gonna make a really big difference in our country. And he really, he could not have been more wrong, right? He could not have been more wrong um, because it has, um, I would argue that single-handedly changed the racial, religious, uh, ethnic demographics of this country. Um, So that's what we have. And I will say one big way that second, third, fourth generation um, Hindus Uh, will have a different experience as compared to the Jews and Catholics is because of race. Mm. Because of race. Because we are racial and religious minorities. Um, Our religion does get racialized, right? So sometimes I've faced harassment, not because I'm Hindu, but it's because I'm, you know, assumed to be Muslim, especially after 9-11 because of brown skin and long hair. Trust me, I have a very intimate relationship with TSA way more intimate than anyone would ever like to have. Okay, so I think in that respect it will be markedly different. The other way it will be different is because of technology, um, right? I, um, I now, you know, I WhatsApp my cousins. Um, I talk to one of my cousins in Bombay almost every day, mm-hmm. right? Um, that was not the case for for those who were coming over and were here in the 20s. As, as I
0: always remind my Indian American friends, my ancestors got off a boat and they didn't have Skype, nor did they speak English. You have that advantage.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there are uh, there are parallels that we can be, can be drawn, um, but there are many, many differences.
0: Mm-hmm. And how is how is the generational change?
2: Well, you know, um, that's interesting. And we, um, I have so many research projects. One day my dean said to me, she's like, you always have so many projects. I said, Patty, I'm gonna have projects into my next lifetime. I got so many projects. And one of my projects um, that I wanna take on, I'm not sure when I will, is really looking at race and religion with the third generation. Right. You know, um, it's gonna be interesting uh because you have a lot of second generation folks who, you know, grew up with parents who were religious. Phil has met mine. Um, you know, my parents helped establish one of the Hindu temples in Atlanta. Um, it's no wonder that I've gone into this kind of work, you know, with the influence that I had from my mom and dad. Um, but what it's going to be like for the third generation whose parents don't know as much as their parents did, you know, and also what we have seen with my own data as well, as well as other anecdotal evidence is that second generation aren't the ones who are going to the temples that were built by the immigrant generation. They don't go really much at all because many times they don't fit in. Um, and so then what is, the, what is religion, what is Hinduism going to look like right. in the third generation is going to be very interesting.
1: Uh, I, I want to thank you for coming on. Any final words? And again, I wanna mention, we'll have this all posted up the book, White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. I've learned a lot in, in our discussion today and it's a lot more I wanna learn. I feel like just peeking in and, and uh, it's really opened up a whole area. And really as a as a white man, I need to learn these things and um, uh, I, not something I can figure out myself. And I, le- I, I part of it is learning to listen. And so I'd love to have you back on the show. I'm sure Phil feels the same. Any final points, uh, uh Kiati or, or Phil?
0: I, I just want to say, Dennis, you called yourself a white man. I have to call myself a white man, but in both cases, our grandparents right. were not identified as white. Yours were right. Goombas, you know, right. your parents were Italian and my parents were Jews. And and that's one of the ways things have changed in this in the culture.
2: And, and, and if I can just add one thing there, what's really interesting is, you know, there's a lot that's been written on the how the Italians became white and how Jewish folks became white. The one real big distinction at that time also, though, is that um, your grandparents or your ancestors were legally allowed to become citizens. They yes. were white enough yes. where they could be citizens. They faced a yes. tremendous amount of social exclusion, discrimination, alienation. Um, so, but... Others um, could not become citizens and indeed had citizenship revoked um, once they did even become citizens.
0: And those early generations could also change their names and fit in, which which was very common where I was growing growing up. Yeah. Thank you so much. There's so much more to say. Is there any final words you'd like to leave our... listeners with?
2: um No, thank you for having me. And, um, you know, if folks are interested, they can find out more about the book at whitechristianprivilege.com.
0: And we'll have
1: that all posted up. Okay. And, and again, I, I look forward to having you back on the oh, show. One
0: last question. Right. <laughs> We're recording this uh, on uh, January 6th. The, the, the 2021. 2021. And Congress is, is presumably uh, certifying the election. We're about to have... A vice president, yes, whose mother, oh, good, good point, was from Chennai. Yes, and um, how does the how does that uh, how does that strike you? And oh,
2: others? it's um, you know one of the things I was actually interviewed on in NDTV um, right on uh, right after the election was an the victory was announced the results I should say was announced, and I, one of the stories I shared there was just really thinking about the fact that Kamala Harris has had some experiences that are similar to mine is just um, flabbergasting and so empowering. Yeah. She talks about going on walks with her grandfather. Well, I did the same thing, you know, walking in Ahmedabad with my grandfather when he would go to the temple. And to think that the vice president of the United States has a shared experience of mine is um well it just kind of you know you get i get goosebumps Um, i also am thankful that because of her position we are going to be having conversations about biracial america because she's biracial in a different way than president obama right? right And 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 this, we're going to have really amazing conversations about religion because she identifies as a Baptist. However, she has Hindu influence, and now she's part of an interfaith couple, which is something that is my <laughs> lived experience. So it's just, I think we're, it's, it's, it's lovely, of course, in terms of, I think, in the values.